Welcome to May. It is Mental Health Awareness Month. Of course, every day is Mental Health Awareness Day here at Zen Founder. The core of our mission is in helping entrepreneurs have informed and meaningful conversations about mental health. This May, we are doing something a little bit different. Rather than focus on the astronomical rise in the suicide rate or help you understand exactly what depression is and give you an overview of the strategies for treating it, those things are really important topics, of course. They're just things that we have talked about before and I'm sure we'll talk about again. But this month, as I was saying, we are focusing on four entrepreneurs, four business owners who are, in my opinion, moving the needle on the mental health challenges experienced by their community or their customers. We'll hear the story of Andrew Herr, who is using what he learned about biomedical research with the military to help prevent the physical and mental health challenges that many entrepreneurs experience in their day-to-day -day lives. We'll also hear from Andrew Ammon, whose company is struggling with a significant and very relevant challenge of how to support the mental well-being of most of their development team, which is based in Ukraine. We'll also hear from Amber Capone from Vet Solutions. She and her husband and team are working on research and access related to how psychedelics can help veterans who have traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, and other mental health concerns. But today I bring you a conversation that I had with Marika Reese. She is an entrepreneur in my own community of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Marika runs a company that helps support children on the autism spectrum. But more recently, she has activated the community healing team. She's pulled together a group of community leaders focused on the mental health of Minnesota's African-American community. This team of helpers is not made up of licensed mental health professionals, but mostly respected members of the African-American community. They've been a fixture of life in the Twin Cities for the last few years. They're notable because they wear these bright yellow sweatshirts, but they've supported protesters outside the courthouse during the Derek Chauvin trial and have been present offering support and help to individuals in distress in the midst of all of the protests and community meetings that have followed the killing of George Floyd and Dante Wright, among others. Marika has used her entrepreneurial chops to offer practical help and help diminish some of the stigma that exists around mental health conversations in all communities, but perhaps especially in the African-American community. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Marika. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So first, I would just love to hear a little bit about what you are most passionate about right now in this season of your life. Right now in this season of my life, I'm most passionate about being unapologetically myself which that incorporates so many things. Me as a woman, a Black woman, a business owner, a community member, I 
and really coming into myself and understanding who I am and ready to really leave a positive impact on the world and everything I touch. That's what I'm most passionate about right now. Oh my gosh. I love that answer. That's beautiful. When you, when you think about the kind of positive impact that you want to leave, what are, what are some of the things that come to mind? I'm I'm sure there are lots of things, but what are the, the things that you most want to have the ability to move the needle in, in the, the world around you? I always want to first and foremost, help people be them best selves, whatever that means, meeting them where they're at and then not guiding them, but walking with them in whatever path they need to get on to be their best self, whatever that means to them. I think for me, I see myself as a trailblazer. One thing I like about myself that can be off-putting to others is I'm not afraid to speak my mind. And I think a lot of people are. And I think there's a lot of great ideas out there. And there could be a lot of great social entrepreneurs out there. I don't mind pushing the needle. I don't mind being the poker. So (laughs) I'm excited about, um, I think that's particularly important in like a, a business being a woman, being a black woman. And I I reiterate that because it's important because when you go into these spaces, you're supposed to be small. And I tend to get really big in these space, in those spaces for a reason, because I want to, I want to normalize it so that when the next person comes and they try to do it, it's not as tough. Yeah. I think part of entrepreneurship is about rule breaking anyway, right? You're like making something that hasn't existed before in the same way or in the same community. And then add to that being a woman, being a black woman, and you're, you're just breaking lots of rules at one time. Definitely. And I love doing it. So people that interact with me or come across my path are going to either love it or hate it, but either way, the next (laughs) time it happens to them or the next time they meet someone that they necessarily don't, they don't think should be sitting at the table with them. They're going to say, you know what, this isn't the first time that's happened. And it's okay if they speak up because I've seen this before. How do you understand the term social entrepreneur? Because I know that is a, a term that you use to define your work. What does that mean to you? Social entrepreneurship to me, um, we need money to live. I enjoy entrepreneurship. I enjoy the idea of making my own income, deciding how much I'm going to make that year, in a sense, creating programs that other people can use. Like I enjoy being innovative in the aspect of entrepreneurship in a social capacity. So you know, I didn't open up a bakery. I didn't open up a clothing store. I care about people. And not that people that do that don't, but like that's that's my focus. That's my joy. That's what makes me happy. I always tell people, you know, I don't say this too loudly, but I would do this for free. I do a lot of the times and I really would. And I did for a few years. So I'm very passionate about um, helping people become their best, their best selves. And uh, just the representation. One thing about social entrepreneurship is um, you don't come across a lot of people in this space who look like me, who are my age. So the representation for me is important because I think we've also been taught like, you know, and I'm not saying anything bad about other businesses, but you can open this, you can be this, you can be that, but this space isn't for you. No one says it verbally, but that's what you're shown because you don't see people, women who look like me in the social entrepreneurship space a lot of the time are welcome there, especially when it comes to like healthcare and mental health. That's a little different. Um, you know, I have an autism center too, so that's very different. Someone looking like me with my background, having a mental health company and an autism center. And I think that it encourages people to be innovative. And that's what I love about social entrepreneurship, because you still get that um, that thrill you get from being a business owner and, you know, making money and determining, you know, what your life is going to be. But you also have the aspect of helping the community and being a part of a greater purpose. Are there ways in which your identity and your selfhood have been really important to your entrepreneurial success? 
Definitely. Especially when it comes to making social programs. I sit at a lot of different, I mean, a lot of tables. I mean, I'm back to back with <laughs> reviewing things and programs. Reading machine. <laughs> I, I, I am. And I do that because of not you, then who. So I'm always at, you know, these tables where we're deciding who's going to get money for what. Do they deserve it? Are they going to, you know, be good in the community? And the answer, who we've historically given the money to is no. I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about is I've read a little bit about what you've written or what people have written about you and the really importance of having Black leaders leading the conversation about mental health. So even though maybe it's not folk that look like you that are usually leading mental health related companies, I imagine that it's got to be folk like you leading mental health companies if they're going to be trustworthy for mental health consumers who are Black. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it's really important just to provide that representation, because like I said before, you know, I used to work in education. So I can't tell you how many times the first day of school I had hundreds of kids run into the door to look into the room. (laughs) And they did that because they heard from another kid. There is a black woman sitting in there and she's young, too. And they were excited (laughs) to see me. And it's the same thing when I work with adults in mental health. When they come down to that room, no one's excited about it's like going to a doctor. You know, no one's super excited. about it. They come down the stairs and they go is it you? And I go, yes. And they're very happy about that. And I think, so on the micro level, it's important with the individual connections. On the meso level, when we are, um, you know, having companies and making programs, it's important because my background is definitely going to influence the way I think and how I think things should be done. And people who currently make these decisions and previously who've made them don't look like me, don't have the same background as me. And that, that doesn't have to necessarily be a horrible thing, but you also need to incorporate those who are close to the issues because they have an insight you don't have. It's inevitable. And then on a macro level, same thing. Um, I get to bring aspects and just, you know, viewpoints to the table that would have never been brought up if I hadn't been sitting there. And it, it hurts me to say that, but every single time I've sat at a table, I've brought up something that I've seen in either, you know, these reviews or these programs that no one would have caught just because they don't have that lens. Yeah. They don't see what you see or know what you know based on your background and the communities that you've been part of. I think one of the things that I have been so intrigued by about your work is the way that you are really turning our understanding of how we provide psychological help on its ear. So, you know, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but the stereotypical, like you've got your, your therapist and you go to the office and you sit in the chair and you talk for an hour and then you repeat next week. And that, that, you know, I think has a lot of utility, but it's a very like one-on-one kind of basis. And then I learn about some of the work that you're doing where you've got community healing teams in these bright yellow sweatshirts that are out in communities. And it's it's this sort of public many-to-many way of thinking about promoting mental well-being that, again, is is super different than the models that have been traditionally practiced. I think what's important about that, too, is um, I remember um, we were, you know, talking and um, we, we offer like different types of services. And I know people would always say or therapists or social workers, you know, they're not coming to the services. And my response was like, well, before the community healing team, even, let's bring the services to them. And then I met some other great like minded individuals who said, yeah, we're going to go into the community and provide these services. Uh, I think that we have to acknowledge the historical trauma that certain communities, especially African-Americans, have been through with social workers, mental health. So they don't really trust you. They don't see the benefit. They haven't had access to it traditionally. So it's going to take time to maybe get someone to want to come sit in the office and talk to you. 
But what you can do is go to them, go learn about them, meet them where they're at, you know, provide resources literally in their community and empower them. I think that's a great way to start because I think realistically, are you know, are you going to get people who really want to sign up for talk therapy who've never seen their parents do it, never seen their grandparents do it? There's a stigma against it. It means something's wrong with you if you're doing that. It's not going to happen, but you can go meet them where they're at, literally. What do you think that communicates when someone comes to to you, right? When somebody meets you where you are, what does that mean in someone's psyche in sort of that individual level? In the simplest form, it means you care. Yeah. It means that you're genuinely interested, you know, in getting to know me and what I'm about. And you really want to help. You know, you're not judging me because that's a lot of it too. Like you're willing to come to where I'm at physically, literally. So you're not judging me. And um, you want to get to know me, what I'm about. And you want to see how you can incorporate things in my culture and my life and things that I care about, you know, in order to help me versus just trying to change me. Yeah, it feels like it's a way to build a relationship and grow and heal together rather than, hey, someone who's sick, come here to the doctor who will do healing things to you, <laughs> right? It's, it's much more active and collaborative in ways that I think are really important. Have you had pushback about a community healing team? You know, it's it's not confidential. It's not private. Do you, how do you do your paperwork? Like, what are the, the sort of questions and struggles that the establishment has? Yeah. So <laughs> you, you get some people, uh, you know, some companies who don't buy into it. And I think that's just what it is. People aren't going to buy into every idea. And one thing I don't do is I don't go recreate a proposal for these companies and these these people because I feel like uh, there are plenty of people who are on the same page as us, plenty of organizations, plenty of foundations who believe in the work we're doing and who understand what it is. So I think that um, we'd be going backwards to even put that much time and effort into people who um, don't understand why this is important work. Right. You don't want to spend the time and energy trying to explain the premise when maybe the doors aren't really open. Because I think there are plenty of relationships that we already have and that we can build on. So I don't I don't want someone there that's halfway in or, you know, someone who's like, oh, I guess we got some money we got to get rid of, so we'll give them a few dollars. I don't want that. I want people who really buy into what we're doing, who care about the community, you know, who really back us to be a part of this work. Yeah. Have you been able to enlist other entrepreneurs or other members of the business community in, in support of community healing teams? Yeah. So out of our 30 members, we have quite a few uh, entrepreneurs. My dear friend, Leslie Redmond, um, owner of Don't Complain, Activate. You know, we have, you know, licensed therapists who have their own practice, even social entrepreneurs who have bought into this work and who said, I want to join this initiative or effort. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy about it. From where you sit and just the vantage point that you have, what are we most getting wrong about the way that we understand mental health? I think we have some of the same problems we've had for decades is where we're, uh, you know, constantly trying to fix people and make them into what we want to be or or make them conform to what is normal. But everybody is, you know, uniquely different and comes from a different life course perspective. So one person's norm is not going to be another culturally things that, you know, have been identified as mental health related issues are not. It could really just be a cultural norm that another community has that you don't share or a value that you don't find is important. So I think we've really gotten wrong making this standardized testings and ideas of what is normal and what is okay to be and what's not. Right. The the sort of 
comparison to some norm. We've kind of grouped people together. Here's the average. And anybody who's very different from that average is pathological. What are you learning on this sort of journey through the different touch points that you have with mental health? I'm learning a lot. (laughs) I'm learning a lot about individuals. I'm learning a lot about my bias, how I have and potentially have caused harm and how I've grown from that and learned. I'm learning that you're also going to receive pushback on both sides, you know, whether it's maybe in communities you want to get into and help and also like the funding side. It's it's definitely an uphill battle. But like I said, for me, something I just kind of like it. I mean, I don't like arguing, but I like the idea that I'm making this easier for someone else. By the time I get done beating this road, because I got to walk back and forth up and down it, they'll be able to cruise through it, hopefully. And what do you do in the, like, do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever have those moments within your own self where you feel maybe the the tendrils of depression or just the like sadness of discouragement? And how do you work within that with yourself? Definitely. I think uh, I get discouraged all the time. <laughs> I get really like, what am I doing? Am I having the impact I think I have? And I had that moment yesterday, actually. And I called my fiance and I said, hey, what do you think? And he said, you know, this isn't the first time you felt like this and it won't be the last time you get over it. A week from now, you're going to have a lot of positive experiences that make you realize like I am doing the right thing. So, yes, you're going to be down heavy as a head that wears a crown. You have a lot on your shoulders right now, but this is a phase. You know, you're going to get through it because you know that people need you and that's what keeps you going. So what's going to get you through it are people depending on you because that's what always gets you through it. I see you come in and out of this. So really this sense of it's it's not permanent. And of course you feel like this because you're doing a lot and it's heavy. And it sounds like the encouragement to just keep going. Definitely. Relying on it. I tell, you know, people who receive services the same thing. Building a support network is very important. You know, there have been studies shown that people even heal quicker physically from adversities when they have a support system. So we all need that. So I, I really make sure that I connect and tap in with my support system frequently. Yeah, you, your people that love you and where you can feel, where you don't have to struggle, maybe, right? That circle of people who you're not having to constantly explain yourself to. That safety feels really important. So one of the things that I, I think a lot about is like the mental health of entrepreneurs specifically, of folks like you who are trying to rearrange things and are often fighting against systems and are often kind of venturing into new paths and new trails. And I think a lot of people like you would say, like, you just keep going, like, that's the job. But I also do worry sometimes about entrepreneurs and the extent to which they are creating space to take care of themselves and to be well and whole. And not necessarily about you specifically, but I guess I just wonder if you've observed that in the entrepreneurial communities that you've worked with and what you think is helpful in helping to preserve the mental well-being of these folks that we rely on to be our innovators. Oh, yeah, this is a seven days a week, 24 hours, 365, a job, you know, and it's, it's uh, thankless at times. It's, you know, unforgiving at times. And the reality is like, you know, you're going to have to be engaged in this much more than you would be engaged in a typical, you know, position that you have. So I've seen a lot of people struggle. I've struggled with it myself, really learning to set boundaries, understanding that, you know, you need time for you. And if you're not okay, then how are you going to help others? So some practical things I do is literally turn my phone off. You know, 
everything should be okay with my phone being off for a day. You know, I didn't mean to rhyme, but it just happened that way. Um, <laughs> so for me, just acknowledging that I'm feeling overwhelmed. So I'm going to let, you know, staff know or whoever know I'm not available the next day. So whatever, like, issues that arise, if it's an emergency, call the emergency line. If it's not, I'm going to be away. Really taking time to care for myself and my own family is vital. Otherwise, it's going to burn you out. I think, um, too, you know, someone asked me, you know, where do you want to be uh, 10 years from now? And I said, 10 years from now, I want to expand my reach. So I think knowing when it's best to kind of not totally remove yourself from the micro level work, but take steps back and move into maybe supervising others, educating. There's a lot of wear and tear on you mentally when you're in this field. So I think it's healthy to, you know, maybe the mental health version of a sabbatical or, you know, move into being a professor and, you know, continuing this community work. Uh, but in a lesser capacity. So you're not wearing yourself out and, you know, you're able to pass the torch to others who are able to also do the work. Yeah. One of the things that I think has been really, really helpful in the conversations that I have had with entrepreneurs around their own mental health is this sense of these of phases of adult development, right? We think a lot about child development. I know with your work in education and your work in autism, you probably really, really well-versed in different phases of childhood development, but adults have similar phases, right? I think, you know, in your twenties, you say yes to everything and you try everything and you burn the midnight oil and you just jump in there and get as much experience and make as many connections and try all the things. And then, you know, maybe in your thirties, you get a little bit more selective, but it's still a lot of energy and moving into your forties. And then, you know, maybe by the time you're 50 and there's obviously no hard lines around this, but you do start to be more thoughtful about creating the support for the people who will come behind you, right? You're not doing the heavy lifting anymore. You're doing the mentoring and the coaching and the teaching and the supporting those 20 and 30, 40 year olds who have all that big energy. And it's important. It's not selfish. I, I, I know I would argue it's more selfish not to do that. I was I watched a Netflix special the other day, and I don't know if you've seen it, but allegedly, like the, the guy passed away and had the only password to this cryptocurrency. So, oh, you know, you know, I, I, th- I thought about that. You know, I was like, wow, what if what if you leave and you've never passed any information on anyone else and you never shared? Like, people are gonna suffer. Yeah, and it it means you've just not done a really good job of you've kind of kept yourself in the middle of the story too much. I mean, I don't know about the crypto guy, but like that, that to me would be like, oh, there's some ego there maybe that you're not willing or open to the fact that other people have so much to give and you're willing to invest in them. So you said a word that I think is a really important word when it comes to mental health care, when it comes to entrepreneurship, and that's the word selfish. (laughs) Like, how do you navigate that terrain of other people's opinions, and maybe your own inner voices around what is selfish, what is self-care, what is service? Because I think selfish is a word that especially as women, women entrepreneurs, we get really like, it's really a powerful word, right? We don't want to be selfish. Of course not. Terrible. Could never want to do that. But I think that word can also, or the fear of being selfish can also lead to some pretty dangerous paths for people. How do you how do you deal with the word selfish? Uh, I'm not afraid of being selfish. Amen. Because I spend so much time. Like I said, this this year, last year, I've been stepping into being unapologetically myself. So I was explaining to anybody, you know, person I'm working with, peer, look, I, I, this is what I know. My body or my mind is telling me I need to take care of myself. This is what I'm going to do. 
I think that, like you said, as women, we get pressured into like not looking or being selfish. And it's it's really up to you to define um, how much of yourself you're able to give, because that's important. And you can't let others define that for you because they're not you. Yeah. And it does take work to know yourself well enough to know what you can really give and what you can't or what you choose not to. You got to have something to bring home. I always tell people you can't. I can't give everything and leave it all on the floor here and then have nothing to take home to my fiance. Yeah, that will that not and keep the relationship, right? right. <laughs> not and keep the peace. Nothing to take home to me. You know, I have to have things, nothing to take home to my family. I have to make sure I'm doing well because I'm helping other people do that. So it's only right that I do that for myself. So if there are entrepreneurial types listening who are curious about maybe how they can use their business oriented skills to help promote mental health or mental well-being. What like tips or suggestions might you have for them? I would say one, you find mentorship. So ideally you would find, you know, someone who's doing something that you want to do and maybe you you know you can really get to know them and build upon that. Um, I provide mentorship for people all the time um, who are thinking they want to get into this field to let them know the reality of it and really if that's something they want to do. Also, don't let anybody tell you you can't do something or your idea isn't good because I can't tell you seriously how many times someone told me that's a stupid idea, that's not going to work, or there's no way you're going to do that, and I did it. Now, there were times it might not have worked out, but I would tell you there were quite a few times where someone discouraged me in something that was totally possible. And I did. So that sense of like, don't listen to the the haters or the naysayers. Yeah, you can't because the, the people, I, I feel like any successful entrepreneur or social or whatever, they'll tell you, somebody told me I had a dumb idea and I continued to do it and it worked out well for me. And had I stopped and they told me to stop, I you know, wouldn't be as successful as I am today. That's a part of your character when it comes to being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you get it wrong sometimes right? It's hard to tell what's a good idea and what's not. One of my friends was early on in the technological team at Uber and was like explaining the project he was working on. And I was like, that's a dumb idea. Just take a taxi. (laughs) Super wrong. (laughs) Super wrong about that. But yeah, that sense in which you have to have enough of your own inner compass. And I, I think that also combines well with the first point that you made about mentorship is that if you have mentors, if you have people who've gone before, they can at least help you by being a sounding board or help you assess whether some of those ideas rolling around in your head are viable or maybe there are just things about them that you don't recognize yet. Because there's lots of people who are willing to stand up and say, no, it can't be done. Well, what's next for you? You're running at least two businesses (laughs) and a social movement, if I could call it that. Trying, you know, I'm playing my part, trying to play my part. I think what's next for me is to continue to develop as an individual, as well as um, continuing to um, do what I can for my community. I want to be a part of larger systems change, which I've stepped into that work over the past couple of years. And I want to continue to do more and be more influential in spaces where there isn't representation. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to watch what you do. Thank you. See how you continue to make life better for the people around you, the communities that you love and serve. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. 
You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.